The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Let's start off praying together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so I pray, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to follow Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, The last few Sundays of Advent, we have primarily been focusing on the second coming of Christ. And now Christmas is just a week away. We're zooming in on the first advent of Christ. And I know it's close because there's more green and red in the audience. Uh, And I think even in our sanctuary, you'll start to see more and more things starting to pop up as we draw closer and closer to Christmas Day. I'm curious, what are you most looking forward to? Children don't struggle with that question. It's a longer list than their gifts. Adults sometimes do. I myself am a little cynical, so I would like to tell you not what I'm looking forward to, but what I hope to avoid. Really, there's one main thing. It's a question. Is this it? Some of you have children. I know you've heard this before. It can be a question that's posed by a child on Christmas morning after opening their gifts. It looks as if a Texas tornado's come through the living room, There's wrapping paper everywhere. There's cardboard boxes, so many that it won't fit in that blue recycling bin that Austin so graciously gives us to put all of our recyclables in. Ours never fit. Do yours fit? Ours never fit. We always have excess recyclables. I can never say that word right either. And you stand there and you hear uttered from the mouth of a child, is this it? The audacity with three or six or 12 gifts scattered at their feet. How dare they ask the question? And you might ask, well, where does it come from? Is it a result of childish entitlement? That it's just kind of a selfish thing to say, that I deserve more than what I have? Perhaps. But maybe it's just the bottom of an avalanche of gift-opening excitement. Like they got on the roller coaster known as opening gifts, and then the roller coaster comes to an end, and they get off, and there's this severe disappointment that sets over them. I have to wait 
another year for this, right? But I've, I've heard that question asked in a different circumstance. Maybe your child's a child that's only going to receive one gift. Is this it? It's coming from a different place, isn't it? It's a place of unmet expectations, a sense of loss, of sadness, of grief. That was me when I was 12. My dad had lost his job, and he happened to lose his job right as my sister was undergoing very extensive and expensive cancer treatments at MD Anderson Hospital. I remember opening one gift and thinking, is, is this it? So which is actually the best response? Which one is right? And I would say with the dramatic Pastor Tim Frickenschmidt-esque way, let us all say together, yes. Yes. It could be any of those. It could be all three. It could be the, is this it? A question that we ask because we feel entitled. And I believe that what I have been given in this life is just simply not enough. It could be, is this it, that you've been riding a roller coaster of pleasure seeking, consuming everything that this world has to offer. And the truth is that the ride will come to an end. It will never, ever give you lasting happiness, what you seek. But I would say the last example is, is more the experience of Advent. It's, it's a question that reveals that things are not as they should be. It's a question of longing, of lack, of yearning, of loss, of sadness, of grief, waiting for things to be made right, longing for hope to be restored. And in that case, it's actually an honest question, isn't it? It, it takes us out of the place of wishful pretending and into life as it actually and really is into the world as we actually see and experience it because we know that there has to be something better than this. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, she's an 85-year-old author, speaker, Episcopal priest. She's often quoted around here during Advent. Uh, But she said this, and mind you, this was said in 1984. So almost 40 years ago, but it's still true to our present day. As I look back over my Advent and Christmas sermons for many years, I see how little difficulty I've had finding illustrations of horror. Every year, there are the same themes going on. War, violence, poverty, racial hatred, totalitarian oppression somewhere, religious persecution, torture, selfishness, greed, and a word, sin. What would you like to wage about Christmas next year? What would be the better bet? That at this time next year, there will be peace on earth, goodwill toward men, or that there will be fountains of blood? Which is the better bet? That's not easy to hear, but as hard as it is to hear, we know this is true. If we are awake and our eyes are open, though I find some prefer to live with their eyes wide shut. I mean, think about it just right now. There's famine and terrorism and civil war taking place in Somalia, and it's lasted for 30 years. Not only that, there's wars in Ukraine and Yemen and Ethiopia, Myanmar. It's resulting in the loss of of countless people into the millions of men and women and children. There's thousands of immigrants on our south border right now. Some of them are literally running for their lives. 
There's kidnappings. I read about shootings and senseless killings of children and students in our state and nation. It seems like every month there's a new story. And there's also an ongoing suppression of human rights in the world, places like China, other places in the world, where Christian pastors are separated from their families and they will not see them again unless they renounce the faith or they become reeducated. We know there's ongoing political upheaval and division in our midst, but I wonder too this week if the upheaval and division that you're fearful of is in your own home. That when I say there's one more week until Christmas, if what swells in you is anxiety and fear because there's unconfessed sin, there's brokenness that hasn't been faced and there's unhealed wounds that just sit across the table from you every Christmas. It's a sad reality. This can't be it. It simply can't be it. And so at this point in Advent, you should be yearning to hear words of promise of hope, of good tidings, of great joy. That's kind of the point. But not because you want to pretend away reality with some kind of Christmas bliss, but because you yearn to enter into a reality that is actually real, that, that brings with it good news and promise of hope a declaration that this isn't it. Hope is on the way. Sadness is going to be undone. Evil will not win. Wickedness is coming to an end. There should be a yearning in us for an announcement of good tidings of great joy, a reason for hope. And that's exactly what we see in our passage today. This is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and this passage offers us this exact gift. It's an enunciation, a declaration that something different, something ancient, something magnificent is finally breaking into the dark of night. And it does it in a strange and and disruptive burst. This tends to be God's pattern for us too. Divine disruption. That's where he comes in. And when he bursts in, we finally and fully have our hands released from the hopes and the attachments of this world, and we find a certain hope. So quickly this morning, that's what I want us to discuss. First, fulfillment, second, disruption, and third, hope. Uh, If you look at our gospel reading, it it has many strange things in it, doesn't it? Uh, A pregnant virgin, which means pregnant, but not by a man and not by her husband. It's a recipe for disaster, at least relational disaster. Uh, There's a near divorce that immediately turns into a renewed marriage because of a bizarre dream from an angelic visitor, right? And then there's a prophecy about a baby, and this baby seems to have a double name, and this is the ancient Near East, not the Deep South, okay? So this is actually strange to them, though it might not be to some of us. There's something peculiar here, even spectacular that's going on. It's so disruptive, Uh, In the first verse of our passage, it starts out in a peculiar way too, if you look at it. One of, uh, it's it's one which commentators have discussed and debated because it's hard to tell whether this is the conclusion to the genealogy before it or whether this is introducing the birth narrative of Jesus. But if you move forward and read ahead, what you'll see is that there's no actual details of Jesus's birth, zero. There's a passing mention of it at the end of verse 25. Matthew gives no journey to Bethlehem. 
Uh, There's no manger or animals feeding. There's no angels rejoicing or shepherds with their flocks looking for a baby. There's nothing you might see in a nativity scene or on a Christmas card. Matthew's focus is not on the birth of this child. It's on the origin of this child. So where this child comes from is the center of attention. It's obviously not Joseph. So we must follow the leading of Matthew and let's go backwards. If you look the language of our first verse, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, but more woodenly it's translated, now the genesis or the genealogy of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's beckoning us to go backwards. And it mimics the language of Matthew chapter one, verse one, which says the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why is this important? Sounds like pastor speak. Something very, very, very ancient is breaking in and being fulfilled in this moment at this exact point in time. And fulfillment is really the front door to realizing hope. I'm curious, are you hoping for something that's unfulfilled? A child? A spouse? A job? Peace in your own home? Perhaps more specifically in your marriage? Could be a myriad of things. Okay? You know exactly what I'm talking about if you have a hope that's yet left unfulfilled. But hope is often attached only to a desire, such as, I hope to be rich one day. There's no certainty to it if it's only attached to a desire. This kind of hope is very uncertain. Okay, but hope carries a completely different weight if it's attached to a promise. I hope to be rich one day takes on an entirely different weight if I happen to have a wealthy father or grandparent. Why? Because there's the promise of fulfillment attached to the hope. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And hope is no longer merely just an escape for the mind, but it's an anchor for life. It's a certain hope. I'm curious, whatever it is you're longing for, what is it attached to? Is it just a wishful desire that you call hope? Is there a path for fulfillment because it's attached to a promise and a person that can actually fulfill it for you? And so Matthew, that's what he's doing here. He's he's purposefully drawing our attention backwards to attach the promise of God the Father to this child in Mary's womb and through him to us. Okay, that this child is the win of God's promise. He's the win of God's promise. As Matthew says in the first verse, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So long ago, an ancient promise was made through King David that in due time, a king, an anointed one, a Messiah, that's, that's what Messiah means, anointed one, okay, would come to earth and would bring with him the universal rule of God over all creation. That God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And he would rescue his people from earthly powers and rescue all creation from the suffering of sin. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8 when he says that creation groans with us, awaiting its own rescue. God's rescue, God's reign on earth forevermore. 
And here in Matthew, in this narrative today, this is signified in the first name given by the angel to this unborn child. You shall call him Jesus, for he will rescue, he will save from sin. And then even longer ago, an ancient promise was made through Abraham that in due time, God's universal blessing would come not only to the people of Israel, but to the entire earth, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples, all nations, that his glory would cover the earth as the water covers the seas and with it also his peace, a forever peace, an unending rest that's coupled with unending peace. So how would these things come to be? And it's in the strangest of ways. The prophetic discourses, even our Christmas narratives in the gospel, they tell us it's going to come through a royal child, a king baby. It's the reason for the royal gifts that are brought from the wise men. They recognize it. It's the reason for King Herod's royal hatred when he institutes infanticide to get rid of every baby near Bethlehem. He fears it. It's the reason we wear royal blue in the Advent season. Not red, not green. This is a royal child. It's a royal child. That's what was promised. But that's not the only thing. The discourse is also mentioned. This is a peculiar child, one that would be miraculously born of a virgin. And it signifies this child is not of human origin. Not just a baby king but a divine king. This child's father is God himself. Listen for a moment from our Old Testament reading. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you hear it there? This child is not just a mere man. Okay? He can't be just a mere man. Only a divine king could deliver on these promises of universal rule and universal blessing. Only God could do something like that. Not a man. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, Attila the Hun, Napoleon. You could try to argue that these men achieved universal rule, though they didn't. But you could never say that they offered universal blessing. Only God can do that. So what's being promised through this child, God's going to have to do himself. In a real way, Advent begins where human potential completely ends. God's going to break in himself and come down to fulfill these ancient promises. And here in our passage, this is signified in the second name mentioned by the angel for this unborn child in Mary's womb. It's Emmanuel. It's God come with us. And so it's no wonder then, is it, that the miraculous circumstances and the supernatural phenomena of the situation a divine conception with an angelic visitation announcing this long-awaited hope, God's breaking in to do what only God can do. Um, at the end of 2019, Time Magazine invited N.T. Wright to provide a, a Christmas editorial. 
which he wrote and he entitled The Revolutionary Politics of the First Christmas. I'm going to read a snippet. Our culture has downgraded the Christmas stories into sweet little songs and primary school nativity plays, but the birth of a baby who will inherit the throne of his ancestor David, as the angel says to Joseph and Matthew, it announces the start of a revolution. Nothing will ever be the same again. In Israel's scriptures, David already ruled over the 12 tribes, but the Psalms and prophets insisted that his ultimate successor would rule over the entire world. Anyone claiming David's kingdom is throwing down a challenge to the rulers of the world, whether in the first century or the 21st century. And here Matthew, starting with his Christmas story, is clear. His account of Jesus is saying from a hundred different angles, this is what it looks like when the real God comes to the rescue. It's divinely disruptive. And Joseph and Mary realize this first, don't they? they? They went from betrothed to expecting to nearly divorced to newly married in a matter of days. The divine disruption in their life changed their lives forever. And that's exactly what divine disruptions do. God breaks in and prepares the way for his rescue and his blessing into the human heart, like the opening of Mary's womb. He breaks in to do what only he can do. And when he breaks in, creation itself gets disrupted to display that it's him coming. These supernatural phenomena were obvious at Jesus's birth, but you know, they were just as obvious at Jesus's death. When he died, the sky darkens for hours in the middle of the day. There's literal earthquakes. The ground is shaking at what's taking place. The veil is torn in the temple and there's no one there to tear it. Miles away from where Jesus is being crucified. The cross was disruptive, strange, peculiar, backwards. I mean, it was, it was through injustice that justice comes to us. It's through violence that peace becomes a possibility for us. It's through the loss of his life that unending life is procured. It's from the mouth of a grave that hope bursts forth. Of course, it's strange. This is why Paul says in his epistle that the world with its eyes wide shut, look at this, and they think it's a bunch of poppycock. It's a whimsical Christmas fantasy. It's an opiate for the masses. But for you and I who believe, we know that this is the very saving power of God in us. God with us. And so I wonder this morning, is your life disrupted? If not now, it likely will be soon. And if it is, hope might just be ready to burst in. You'll likely be faced in your own life, in your own way, with the question, is this really it? And maybe you'll be faced with your selfish entitlement, a complete dissatisfaction with what you've been given in this life. Perhaps you'll be faced with the roller coaster that you've been on for years, and it needs to come to an end because it's not going to provide what you think it will. Perhaps you're in pain. 
waiting, longing, yearning, despondent. Because the hopes of this world still remain for you unfulfilled in some form or fashion. But I'm telling you, something's going to burst in. And I hope that like Mary's womb, your heart is open to it. That a divine disruption will enter in and create in you something that has not yet existed in that way. That through faith, you will know what it means to have a certain hope. As Jesus Christ comes to Advent in your own heart and in your own life. I pray it would be so in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, you, you are quick to visit us and we are slow to respond. Thank you for your long-suffering love. Thank you for fulfilling these ancient promises through your son, Jesus Christ. May we, by faith, receive the hope that's offered in him. Even this morning, I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.